Good morning. Uh, please stand for the reading of the word. Again, it's 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Feels like fall all of a sudden, doesn't it? Wow, I wasn't ready for that. Well, great to be here. And um, if you missed last week, we started a series in First Peter that's going to take us through the fall, take us right up to Christmas. And I'm really looking forward to going through this letter together. It's a really amazing, uh, it's heavy, uh, I think it is perfect for uh, the moment we find ourselves in. So looking forward to doing this together. Last week, uh, we did, looked at just the first two verses, and in those verses, Peter uh, gives us our identity. He describes us as elect exiles. I mean, it's kind of an oxymoron, but he says, this is who you are. I want you to imagine yourselves with this identity. You are God's elect exiles. You are the elect. You're chosen. You're blessed. You've been given the gospel. You have honor and status. You are children of the king. And yet, and because of that, you are also exiles. You don't fit in anymore. You shouldn't fit in. Um, your, your lives have been set on a different trajectory than they were before you knew Jesus and on a different trajectory than the rest of the world. So you are the elect and you are the exiles, and get used to it. That's what he says, uh, how he starts this. He, he wants us to imagine our identity in a certain way. And today, I, I love this passage. Um, in this passage, he gives us what, what I'll call an imaginative framework for understanding our lives, okay? And by imaginative, I don't mean make-believe, but I mean he gives us a framework by which we can imagine life as it actually is, so that we can see our lives the way they actually are. And so before we look at this, this passage, I want to just talk about this for a second, this idea of a, an imaginative framework, because the reality is we all have, every human being has some imaginative framework that they use to explain life, okay? I came across this quote this week uh, that I thought was really helpful. Uh, and here it is, oops, 
There is. Uh, life events don't come with self-contained and immediately obvious interpretations, right? Things happen. They don't tell you, this is what this thing means. No, rather, we conceptualize them in terms of imaginative structures that we take to be true and normal. We filter our experiences through some kind of framework that seeks to make sense of what we are going through. And again, we all have imaginative structures, imaginative frameworks. So you have big picture frameworks. We have like secular evolution is a framework for really explaining everything for it kind of explains why things are the way they are. Or you have certain Eastern philosophies and religions that have more of a cyclical imaginative framework for understanding how the world works. People have their own personal frameworks, just little slogans that kind of make sense of life. Life is an adventure would be a way that one person might interpret their life. Or life is a competition, right? Life's a competition. Uh, life's a party. Um, uh, life's a journey. Um, some people have um, darker ones, like the world is out to get me. <laughs> That's a framework that some people kind of run their experiences through. But we all have different frameworks for understanding life. And that partly explains why, and you'll notice this sometimes, two people can go through really similar things and come out totally different on the other end. You never notice that? I mean, I've talked to people who, for instance, maybe had a really painful family of origin story. And some people never recover from that. And some people come out and are able to thrive in the midst of that. And part of that might be constitution and wiring, but some of that is the framework that they use to understand what's happening to them. Uh, we are all still in the midst of this whole experience of a pandemic. And some of us, or some people, will come out of this uh, more angry, <laughs> more bitter, more anxious, more afraid than they went into it. And some people will come out more humbled, more gracious, more generous, more compassionate. Same experience interpreted through a different lens, through a different imaginative framework. And this is what Peter's trying to give us. He wants us to imagine our lives the way they actually are, okay? So I want to show you a little diagram that I think captures Peter's imaginative framework. But there's a little phrase that pops up. You could miss it in our passage. Um, but it's this phrase in verse 6. Though now for a little while, okay, that little phrase, though now for a little while, I think captures Peter's imaginative framework. So let me show you a little diagram here. So here's, I think, how he wants us to imagine our lives. At some point, he's, you know, writing to believers, you had what he calls in verse 3, the new birth. You were born again. You became a Christian. You gave your life to Jesus. Uh, and then you're going to live the rest of your life. And then you're going to die. Okay, And that time between your new birth and your death is what he calls, though now, for a little while. And it's just a short time, and that's hard to imagine because it's all we've ever known. That's my, that's my entire existence. <laughs> but Peter's saying, but it's though now for a little while. And it's a time where there's clouds. It's a time where there's trials. There's challenges. You continue to live in a fallen world. But after that time, there is what he'll call something like eternal glory. There is eternity, this eternity with the most glorious being in the universe, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this is the imaginative structure for the elect exile's life, though now for a little while, followed by eternal glory. And two things that I think are worth saying about that. First, what he's saying is our time in this life, um, it might be painful, it might be challenging, it might confusing 
be confusing, but relatively speaking, it's really, really short. Like if you could step back and see the whole picture, you'd realize, oh, it's such a short time. And the second thing that becomes clear in this book is it's not just that it's short, but that, that the glory of the future in, in Peter's imagination, it kind of casts its light back on the present so that it, it even infuses our present day with meaning and purpose and hope, even in the midst of the challenges of life, so that we live even now with a living hope because the future kind of casts its light back into the present. So we get experience the present in light of the future. That is his imaginative framework. The same framework I think the rest of the biblical authors have. It's certainly the one that Paul has when he says, for our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that surpasses them all. All right, so this is what he's inviting us into. This is, how, this, is, this is what's happening with your life. This is how you ought to imagine your, the events of your life through this lens, okay? And with that, he's going to give us two main ideas today. He's going to talk about the joy of our salvation, and he's going to talk about the role of trials in our lives. So let's take a look at these. The joy of our salvation and the role of trials. First, let's look at the, the joy of our salvation. Let me read some of these verses again. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. He says the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus burst forth from that tomb, a new kind of life burst into this world. And you get to experience it through what he calls the new birth. When the spirit of God moves in your life, opens your eyes to the truth, gives you new spiritual life, you are brought into this salvific reality where you get to now experience a living hope. And you have this future, right? He talks about in verse 4, this inheritance that is waiting for you. He's talking about that eternal glory. He's talking about life with God and God's people in this epic place, new heavens and new earth, that goes on forever and ever, as C.S. Lewis describes in The Last Battle, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Right? That's the inheritance. And Peter's saying, you have this inheritance. Your future is really bright. And I just want to say that to us all. Whatever you're going through today, um, your future is really, really good. I mean, it's like epically awesome. The story's going to end really well. All manner of things shall be well in the end. And I, I love how he describes this inheritance. He says, it can never perish, spoil, or fade. And I just think those adjectives are really helpful in a world right now that feels so changing and ever-changing and ever-shifting. Things pop up and they're gone. They change. You can't count on anything. This is an inheritance that never does any of that. It is a guarantee. It will be there for you. It's going to be amazing. This is your salvation, this, this future inheritance that we all have. And not just a future, but actually a present reality too. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, this is referring to Jesus, you love him. 
And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You have this inheritance that is future, but guess what? You have Jesus now. You believe in him. You can't see him, but you believe in him and you love him and he is with you every day through his Holy Spirit. So that's why it's called in verse 3, a living hope, because the living Christ dwells with you. So this is your salvation. You have Jesus right now. No matter what you're going through, you have the risen Christ with you now, and you have this epic inheritance, this future that is waiting for you, okay? This is your salvation. And um, what really struck me this week is the tone of of joy and praise that permeates this passage. Look at verse 3. Praise be to God. Peter is, is praising God for something, and his readers are experiencing joy. Look at verse 6. In all of this, this salvation, you greatly rejoice. Not like you, you kind of rejoice, right? But you greatly rejoice. And then look at verse 8. Um, the second half of verse 8. You believe in him and Jesus, and you are filled... Listen to this description of joy with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You're really joyful in this salvation. And um, here's my confession. I was reading this and, and sitting in this all week, and I felt like I was peering into this epic joy that I was kind of an outsider to. Like, like Peter's describing the joy of these believers in the first century. And I was like, huh, like that's not how I would describe my life. I, I don't live my life with, with that kind of joy in my salvation, the way apparently Peter and they were. And I was thinking through why that might be, and I think there's a couple reasons. One, these were, these were um, first-generation Christians. These were people who'd grown up in the world and then came to believe at some point. And so they knew life before God. They knew what the, what the gospel meant. Um, many of us here are maybe second or third generation Christians. We grew up in the church. We don't really have this massive before after story. Some of you that became a, a, a believers as adults, you know this story. Like I know life outside of Christ and I know life with Christ. And so that there's something beautiful about that. I think they also were standing at this moment in salvation history where the, the Messiah had just come in their lifetime. I mean, Peter ends this, this passage in verse 12 by saying, even angels long to look into these things. Like, you guys are living in a moment that is amazing. And, and now 2,000 years later, we kind of lose some of that. I think they're, the suffering that they were experiencing, I think when you, you talk to Christians who've truly gone through suffering, you find there is, there is a deep joy uh, in them that sometimes those of us who've had really comfortable lives um, lack. But another thing would be, to go back just to what I said at the beginning, uh, this imaginative framework, um, I think for me, what happens is I lose sight of that big picture, like the big story of our salvation. I lose sight of that, and I get so myopic in the day-to-day, -day, and I'm just focused on the things right in front of me that I lose the fundamental joy of the big story, right? Seeing the forest for the trees, and I, I, as I thought about that, I was reminded of Jesus' um, parable of the sowers in that third seed where seed is scattered on different soils. And this is the third seed. He says, some people are like seed sown among thorns. 
There are those who hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And I thought that is so true. We get, we get so focused on the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. And what it does is it chokes our faith, but it also chokes our joy. I made a list of things that we just think about all the time instead of our salvation. Um, what people are thinking about me. Uh, doing another house renovation. Um, what grades my kids are getting at school. The fitness goals I have this year. Marital conflict I'm experiencing. Uh, the way I'm not being recognized at work. Uh, the property wars we're having with our neighbors right now. How my college football team's doing this fall. The tenants who aren't paying rent. How are we going to pay rent, right? All these things that we get caught up in, some very important, some less important, but we live our lives in the weeds, don't we, for the most part? And what that can do is it can choke our joy, the joy of the gospel and the salvation. And what Peter is trying to do in this passage is he's trying to pull us out of the weeds, lift our eyes up to the horizon again, and say, guys, look at the bigger picture. It's beautiful. It's bright, it's glorious, and awesome. And sometimes we need that imaginative framework for seeing the big picture again. Um, I was reminded this week, I think I've told this story before, but like 15 years ago, uh, with my previous white Camry, I'll just leave you with that phrase, because I'm, I'm a car guy, clearly. Um, so my last white Camry that I had, uh, I was driving, a rock hit the windshield, and just kind of you know, hit it a little bit, and then this crack slowly, you know, went right across the windshield, right at eye level. Uh, the windshield stayed fine, um, but so I'd be driving down the freeway, and it was right at eye level, so it was really hard not to focus on the crack and to put my vision like a foot in front of me uh, at the windshield, which turns out it's a really dangerous way to drive, you know. But it actually became like this metaphor for me, like. There's a horizon out there <laughs> that I'm supposed to be looking down or towards, but it's so easy to focus in on this little crack. And that is so how we live our lives. We get so caught up on the windshield, the cracks, what needs to be cleaned or what's awesome about it. And, and I think Peter's like, man, <laughs> keep your eyes fixed on the horizon. It's a better way to live, and it's a more joyful way to live. And that's what he's trying to get us into, this bigger picture of God's salvation and the joy that is ours regardless of what the day-to-day of our lives is. So let's fix our eyes on the horizon. Amen? All right. So that's the joy of our salvation. And then here's where I'll spend the rest of our time today. He goes on within that framework to talk about the role of trials in our lives. Uh, Famous verse here. Look at verse 6. In all of this, all of this, this great horizon, you greatly rejoice, though now For a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And I want to just pause there. And I know this has been a really hard time for so many of us. Um, And so I want you to right now just actually identify a particular trial that you are in right now or that you've recently been in, okay? Something that has been challenging, it's been frustrating, it's been exhausting, it's been hard, it's been confusing, whatever it may be. Um, Peter says, you've been, you suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's all sorts of trials out there, 
okay? Let me just list some of the kinds. There's trials that are directly associated with being believers and the, and the challenges that comes with being a believer. And then there's trials that are just common to all people living in a fallen world, all kinds of trials. Um, there are some trials that are connected with our health, some that are connected with relationships, some that are connected with our work, some that are connected with our finances, some that are connected with our reputation. There's trials that feel very external, and there's trials that feel very, very internal. Uh, and there are some trials that are really short. There's some trials that can drag out for a long time. Uh, and there are some trials that will be with us till the day we die. All kinds of trials. And the question is, how do we make sense of these? What do we imagine their presence in our lives to be? Are they a nuisance? Are they obstacles to our joy? Are there problems to be fixed? Are they things to be avoided at all costs? Are they opportunities? What are they? What, what are they there for? What do we imagine their presence in our lives to be? And Peter is trying to give us an imaginative framework for trials. And here's what he's going to say in this passage. For the elect, for those who've given their lives to Christ, for God's chosen, two things are happening in trials. We're being shielded and we're being burned. <laughs> and that sounds kind of strange to say both of those things, but that's precisely what he says. We're being shielded in trials and we're being burned in trials. Let me show you both of these. First, uh, we're being shielded. Look back at verse 5 who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of this salvation. He's saying what's happening for God's people in trials is, is God will shield you in trials. Or in other words, you, might, you just might say guard or protect. What happens is God comes around his people in trials of all kinds. He protects them. He watches over them. He guards them. He, he shields them. It says shielded by God's power. Power, and it's really good to remember the power of God in our trials. Saying so you have this God who's, whatever you're going through, he's far more powerful than whatever you're going through. He owns the universe. He has every power available to him. And by his power, he can shield you through, tri through trials and through suffering. Okay? It's a comforting image. Um, but let's acknowledge clearly what Peter is not saying is that God shields his people from trials, right? I mean, clearly, these people are not being shielded from, from persecution. Uh, God's people aren't shielded from cancer, from uh, unemployment, from COVID, from all forms of suffering. Peter himself will be crucified. That's how he's going to die, and God's not going to shield him from that. So he doesn't mean God shields us from trials. He must mean something like God shields his people in the midst of trials, so God must be shielding his people from certain things that would be harmful to them, like losing their faith, like moving towards despair or, or deep discouragement, that God can come alongside his people right in the midst of painful trials and by his power provide the things they need, encourage them, strengthen them so that they can move through that trial with their faith intact, okay? And I want to read a verse to you that we're going to sing in a little bit. I love this passage. This is from Isaiah 41. This is about God shielding through trials. So don't fear, and I want you to take this in, especially those of you that are going through hard times right now. Don't fear, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And here's the, here's the passage. When you pass through the waters, 
I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He's saying you will pass through the fires. You will pass through the waters. But they will not destroy you. They may kill you. (laughs) But they will not destroy you. Because I will be with you. I will protect you. I will guard you in and through your trials. And many of you right now could, bear, could get up here at this mic and bear witness to how God is shielding you in a really painful trial, encouraging you, showing up when you need him. Maybe not how exactly you'd want, but we can testify to the way God does this. Okay? So this is the first thing that happens is we're shielded in trials. But then the second thing, Peter says, is um, we're also burned through trials. So let me go back to verse, uh, go go to verse 7. Look at this one. These, meaning the trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So he makes this metaphor that many of us are familiar with of gold, which is refined by fire, right? So the idea is you take uh, a lump of gold that is is mixed with other metals or other impurities, and you turn up the heat real hot, and you burn it. And, And those other things are slowly burned off, and the gold comes, emerges out of the fire, uh, pure and stronger because of what it's gone through, okay? That's the analogy. And Peter's applying that uh, analogy to this phrase he uses. I want you to, this is the phrase of the day in verse 7, the proven genuineness of your faith. That's what trials are all about, Peter says. It's about the proven genuineness of your faith. He's referring to something that has been tested, that has gone through a test and has come out the other side pure and, and is shown because it's come through to be genuine, to be authentic, to be substantial. And Peter's saying this is what God is up to in trials. He's up to the proven genuineness of your faith. Because the truth is, our faith, if we're honest, um, isn't pure gold. Our faith is an alloy of some kind, right? Like, I do trust God. I do love God-ish, Right? Um, a, a lot, mostly. And I love other things, too. And I, I count on other things. And I, I bank on other things. And I, I trust in other things as well. And what happens in trials is the heat gets turned up, doesn't it? Uh, and something we love other than God, something that we hope for, something that we count on. It could be a really good thing. It's not a bad thing necessarily, though it could be. But something we love and trust and count on and desire is stripped away, at least for a time. And so I want you to actually think about this, whatever trial you identified that you're going through now or have been recently. I want you to identify what is that thing that you love? What's that thing that you count on? What's that thing you would want to be able to bank on that is being stripped away from you. There's something you love and delight in and count on and trust in, and probably not for bad reasons, and it's being at least temporarily pulled from you, and it's really painful. It's a crucible, but what is it? 
It might be, again, let me mention some things. It might be your reputation. It might be your status that is being stripped from you, and it's painful. It might be financial security. It might be your health. It might be certain comforts. It might be a sense of freedom. It might be a sense of control. It might be a relationship or a person that matters to you. It might be your sleep. <laughs> or it might be just being able to live life thinking you kind of know what to do all the time, and now, now you don't right? It's something we love and we bank on, we hope on, and it's pulled from us, and it's painful. It's, as I said, it's a crucible. But here's the potential in trial. The potential is for the proven genuineness of your faith, for you to be able to go through a trial and in the midst of it say, God, this stinks. This is so painful. This is so hard, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to keep counting on you to be with me in this. Uh, I'm going to seek to go through this in a way that honors you. And sometimes trials get so heavy that we're completely forced into that posture. It's like, God, I, honestly, I have nothing else. Like, all I have is you now. <laughs> Literally, I have nothing other than I know that you're with me. That's all I have right now. That's all I've got. And the beauty of that is, is God shows up in that. God shields our faith in the midst of that. And we're refined. And our faith is proven genuine through the fire. And we come out of that trial, maybe with a limp, but trusting him more purely. Believing and more, more purely devoted to him than we were before. That's called the proven genuineness of our faith. And that is the key because there's a big difference between saying, I have faith, and actually walking through the fire and watching our faith come out still intact on the other side and even stronger for it. That is a really powerful experience for us and it's a powerful experience for God in lived experience to watch our faith in him, our trust in him, prove itself out. I want to share the story of, of Abraham for a moment because um, his journey, he, he is the man of faith who lived the journey of faith that is so, I think, so beautiful. Um, I'm going to show you pictures from the Jesus Storybook Bible, not to make light of it because I actually love these pictures. Um, but you know, many of you know the story of, of Abraham. Genesis 15, Abraham, Sarah, they have no children. They're well beyond childbearing age. God takes Abraham out to the night sky and shows him all the stars. And he says, I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, right? And Abraham, in that moment, he can't see the descendants, but he can see the power of God in the stars. If, if God can make these stars, he can give descendants to an old man, and it says Abraham believed in God in that moment. Abraham, Abraham trusted God, okay? It was an act of faith. Um, but it's one thing to be looking up at the night sky and to say, sure, I, I, that's a beautiful story. I believe that. But as you see the journey, God had a journey to take him through, which was all about the proven genuineness of Abraham's faith. So it's like a decade later before Abraham and Sarah get the child of promise Isaac means laughter, the son of laughter. Finally, after all these years, uh, they get this, this child, 
And he is their great hope. He is the way that their family is going to continue. Um, he is the way that God is going to bless the nations. God said, I want to bless all the nations through your family, and I'm going to give you a son. And this is the first of this great you know, host of families that would bless the world. But you can imagine the relationship that Abraham must have had with his son Isaac. I mean, he must have been the apple of his eye, right? Like all of his hopes, all of his joys, all of his future was in this son Isaac. He must have loved this son, and it must have been tempting to make this son everything in his life. And so about 10 years after this, um, God takes Abraham through the crucible, through the fire, uh, this is Genesis 22, and God says to Abraham, it says that God tested Abraham. It says, Abraham, take your son, excruciating, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, right? He's tapping in all of that, and go to the mountain of Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And, um, you know, it's so interesting. The Bible gives no um, uh, no insight into Abraham's mental state. It doesn't give us any psychology of what Abraham must have processed that night. His, his pride and joy, the love of his life, his son, that his God was now asking him to sacrifice him. And, and we don't know what went on. What we do know is that the next morning he got up early and went up the mountain to sacrifice his son. And what the author of Hebrews tells us is that Abraham reasoned that God would raise his son from the dead. That that was the conclusion in his mind that Abraham came to that night. That, okay, I know that the, the promise comes through Isaac. I know that. And I know God has told me to sacrifice Isaac. So how do I fit those together? I guess I'm going to sacrifice him. And God is going to raise him from the dead. That's pretty powerful. And that's not quite what happened, as you know. That, that just before Abraham sacrifices his son, God says, stop. <laughs> Don't do this. He says, now I know that you fear the Lord. Now I know that you trust the Lord because you've not withheld your only son from me. And then, of course, God provides a ram in the thicket, and Abraham receives his son back. He goes through the fire. His faith goes through the fire, comes out on the other end. And I've, I've thought a lot, actually, about what Abraham's relationship with Isaac would be like after this. And I would suggest it was never the same after this, right? I mean, the gratitude he must have felt for receiving his son back— but also the way that he would forever hold his son loosely. For the way that he had gone through an experience that told himself and told God, oh my gosh, God is the most important thing in my life. God is my treasure, and I trust him above all, even treasure him more than my own son. He would forever enjoy his son as a gift, but hold him loosely, <laughs> I believe. And... Um, I'm not trying to say that every trial we go through is, is an Abrahamic God testing us because there's some idol in our hearts. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that is the role that trials can have, to prove out the genuineness of our faith. And what can happen is we can emerge from, from trials, our faith intact, and our relationship with things changes. We hold them more loosely because God is our treasure and everything else is kind of gravy in the end, right? Wonderful gifts from God. But that's the journey of faith, guys. This is the journey of faith. It is this, it, we start uh, with this faith when we become believers, 
um, but there's so much mixed in there, and we, most, we don't even know it when we become believers. There's so much pride. There's so much ambition. Um, there's so much control. There's all sorts of things we don't even know is there half the time. And over the years, the trials come, and they strip us of things one after the next, but hopefully leaving us humbled, grateful, but more and more fully God's, more and more trusting in him and treasuring him above all things. That is called the proven genuineness of our faith. And here's the last thing I want to say. What, Abraham, what God said to Abraham is, now I know. Now I know that you fear the Lord. I got to, and God knows everything, but he got to watch it and lived experience. And that's the beauty of this passage. What Peter says, here's the, the verse I want to leave you with. Uh, at the end of verse 7, right? So that the proven genuineness of our faith, look at the last phrase, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, okay? Peter's taking us back to this picture of when Christ returns, he will come in all of his glory. It will be awesome. It will be epic. And what's almost more amazing, but not, but almost, is Peter saying when he comes in his glory, he is going to see the proven genuineness of our faith, and he is going to bestow glory and honor on us. He's going to see his children standing there who are battle-tested, whose faith has gone through the fires and is still there, their hearts more passionately devoted to him. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servants. Well done, brothers and sisters. Because you were knocked down. You were in the fire. You were confused. You were battered. Right? You, had, you were almost without hope. But you clung to me. You trusted me. You stayed with me. And now we're here to celebrate this. And I give you some of my glory, some of my honor. And I have no idea what that's going to be like. <laughs> but I promise you that any accolades, any awards you've ever gotten in this life will pale in comparison to the glorious Savior coming and seeing your faith intact at the end of time and bestowing on you glory and honor. It's almost impossible to imagine. But that is the clear evidence of Scripture. So we live in that world this is where we are. This is the framework in which our lives make sense. Let me leave you with the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, in light of this, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but what's unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray, um, I know that we are going through all sorts of trials. Lord, would you give us moments where you just pull our eyes out of the weeds, where we see the horizon, the brightness of the future, and that that would fill us with hope and joy, give us um, just food for the journey. And we pray, I pray especially for those who are really discouraged right now, who are really anxious, 
or troubled or just in desperate places where they, they really need you, Lord, I pray that you, you would just show up and encourage and provide and strengthen and protect, bring people around them, move them in them through your spirit, that their hearts and minds would be encouraged. Show, shed your light on the path that they should take, how they should walk through these days, Lord. And more than anything, shield us, strengthen our faith in you, that we come out of these trials more trusting than we went into them, Lord. We pray all this for your glory. Amen.